and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. Today's episode is about redefining leadership and uncovering untapped potential. I'm delighted to welcome Jenny Vasquez Newsom, author of Untapped Leadership, Harnessing the Power of Underrepresented Leaders. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. An absolute pleasure. Jenny, you recently authored your book, Untapped Leadership, which brings together your views on the limitations on current leadership rhetoric, but your experience of life and leadership, and also the experience of life and leadership of all the people you've impacted through your work and the company you founded called Untapped Leaders, which is looking to uncover potential. But not only, what I really like is it's also looking to uncover the systemic reasons as well as individual reasons, uh, that this power is going unnoticed, like this leadership superpower, or at least it's not being acted upon or listened to. So for me, this is such an important topic and a quest we share, of course, but particularly in today's world where we're more connected than ever, interconnected digitally, but ironically, I feel like sometimes we're more disconnected than ever, both from ourselves and and from the people we live and work with. So I would really like to start with something that... I feel frames our discussion very well on the topic of this podcast. And it's one of your career lessons that you share early on in the book, where you say that for you, workplace systems are powerful, but I am not powerless. Yeah. So workplace systems are powerful, but I am not powerless. That really resonated with me. And so for me, it's a great place to start also because power is going to be an integral part of our discussion, as is purpose, as is potential. But power from an individual perspective, a collective perspective, but also society as a whole. So can you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey and what in particular led to this realization and to you formalizing it that way? Yeah, I love to start there because it, <sighs> it was such a pivotal I can imagine. realization yeah. um, that mm. came, you know, decades into my career, to be honest. Uh, it's, mm. it's really this awareness that, you know, I've navigated uh, these workplace systems that in the moment feel mm. overwhelming, feel that I'm small um, in, in that space mm. and that I can't really have an impact. Uh, but uh, ultimately, that's not true. And so my career, I have a background in education um, and leadership. I've worked in the nonprofit sector as well as in higher education. Uh, a lot of different types of systems in, in mm. that. Uh, really a small, uh, you know, Black women-led nonprofit organization really early in my career, a big foundation of mm. my leadership journey, um, kind of learning from uh, those that uh, were leading effectively to larger systems. Uh, the higher education is such a behemoth of a system, uh, (laughs) long histories, big hierarchies, uh, big structures that are, they feel immovable uh, a lot of times. Mm. And, um, you know, really kind of navigating uh, leadership through that as Mm. a, you know, I identify as a woman of color um, has been a journey. Uh, You know, I've had moments where, you know, I felt like the the system, quote unquote, the culture Mm. didn't align with my values with, you know, what I thought I could contribute with the impact I wanted to have, mm. uh, really thinking about my my lone life's journey of, of leadership. Mm. I wasn't able to exercise it in, in some spaces. Um, mm. But, you know, I think in reflecting on this idea of untapped leadership, yeah. of this, this potential that we think, I think we all have, um, mm. particularly in these big systems that are 
deeply embedded, have histories uh, that if we align with this idea that we can't do anything, then that's where status quo persists. And that's where, you know, business as usual continues, where we lose our own agency in Mm. making shifts. And so I reflect on my career, and particularly in kind of the larger systems I've navigated, I did have agency. I was able to have an impact on my team or on Mm. small processes that, you know, on these micro moments, Mm. I could shift something um, mm. and and really thinking about hey, if we all collectively think about those small moments where we can kind of shift and edge through a change, that's where the macro shifts begin. Um, everything mm. starts small. And so, you know, really coming to this realization of you know, my own agency, my own ability, I think mm. was a turning point for me in mm. my leadership journey and my opportunity to bring this book to fruition, mm. to kind mm. of come to this realization that oh, the world needs to hear uh, these ideas and these and these perspectives. And so that's that's really where it all shifted for me. And I love that because, you know, it's a very simple sentence, I am powerful. So taking a stand for I am powerful seems like a simple action, although it, it's quite hard, isn't it, to step into and to stay in. That's right. When, like you say, you, we have these systems who have systemic memories and systemic ways of working and who will try and convince you that macro change isn't possible and keep you in a place where you're feeling smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it works around here. So I'm talking about culture. That's the way we do things around here. And right. the larger the system, the more ingrained the bureaucracy, but also the memory of or the biases that are held within that system for whatever reason. And what I really liked about your book is it demystifies some very complex, what I call messy human problems, you know, <laughs> sort of, and these, yeah. the, the language that's used in DE&I quite a lot that can often be a little bit exclusive. Yeah. Yes, we do need to hear what's in your book because you've simplified it and said it like it is. And I think for me, that's the first step of any battle is an understanding of language and an alignment mm-hmm. on what we're actually talking about. And then if you stand on top of that, and say, I am powerful, right. then it's exciting. <laughs> right, right. And I appreciate you naming that because I think the, I was very deliberate in mm. the language used mm. all the way through. Um, mm. You know, I sat with it. I yeah. thought about it. Um, yeah. I spoke to the publisher about it. I mean, you know, how I wanted this to be represented because mm. I do agree with you, you know, for some reason, and uh, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, like, you know, all these words have become trigger points that almost immediately for different reasons, walls come up, defenses emerge, Mm. you tone things out uh, and they're necessary conversations. And, and I think we can have them uh, Mm. if, if we, you know, unpack and just really talk, Mm. you know, human to human, person to person, remembering that, you know, Mm. our cores are potentially aligned in in our, our, what we want out of work, what we want out of life, what we want to experience. Mm. Um, But once we, we've unfortunately kind of gotten to this space of of labels having, they're carrying in so much interpretation for everyone that we're not starting from the same place. And so, you know, I think when I'm thinking about 
leadership and untapped leadership, I always will say that, you know, this work sits at the intersection of leadership and DEI, but it is ultimately a leadership book. It just happens to be from perspectives that have been historically marginalized and, and currently marginalized. And so that's where, you know, I think we have an opportunity to just talk about it. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A massive opportunity, and I think it is about changing the conversation. But it's a dialogue that people are a little bit afraid of because they're scared of getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing, or right. or they don't equate with that lived experience. So so they don't they don't have that in their on their radar. Let's put it that way. Right. But if I look at the shift in leadership paradigms and you know the being more developmental and particularly holding multiple perspectives and. Now, I hear a lot about we need to scale empathy, which is true. But, you know, when you say in your book that there's a particular leadership expertise that exists when individuals experience their careers through the intersection of, of their different identities, right. which you've just alluded to, I would love it if you could unpack that for our listeners and, and what that means, because I think there's a world of opportunities in understanding that, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we think about our identities, our many yeah. identities. Uh, mm. You know, I'll name some of mine that mm. emerged for me. I'm a woman. I am biracial. I'm mm. black, and I'm, I'm Cuban. I am a mother of young children. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of different aspects of me inform mm. who I am, my view mm. of the world, the way I lead, the way I, you know, the way I think, and their intersections actually have given me a unique experience in mm. in my life. Like really thinking about the intersections of our identities, those points that they cross, uh, mm. that is in itself its own experience. It's not, yeah. you know, yeah. being a a black mom is is different than being a mom. Um mm. and you know, it's there's a different experience. And and so what I tried to put forth in the book is that all of us have these intersecting identities, um, intersecting, you know, uh, experiences, lived experiences. And in those intersections, they usually, I, I think, are marginalized because they're maybe not as common, um, yeah. as, they're not as experienced by others. But in those spaces are, are opportunities to think about, well, you know, I'm experiencing this uh, and I see, you know, this problem in this unique way because I am a black mom or mm. a, um, a a woman that has big curly hair, uh, you know, like really kind of <laughs> thinking about, you know, our intersections that, yeah. that really afford us a way to look at the world that is unique. And mm. when we think about leadership, when we think about, you know, organizational capacity, the team capacity, why not just all of those perspectives? Um, mm. we, we tend to move towards kind of what's common, what's dominant, um, you know, the, the the really known aspects of, quote unquote, being professional in the workplace or really mm. thinking about what is, um, you know, the viewpoints that inform our work, our outcomes. Mm. And I, I think we're missing out on a lot when we when we don't consider the ways that our intersections may give us a different different approach, a different, mm. you know, standpoint, a, a different, uh, you know, way to solve a problem. I mean, yeah. really thinking more creatively, more mm. innovation. I think that innovation exists at those intersections. It exists at those margins. And so that's really what I was trying to kind of mm. explain through that concept of intersectionality that can sometimes be 
one of those words that, you know, yeah. it walls come up or, you know, just confusion or just uncertainty of what that means and just uh, just nervousness of getting into those conversations when it really is very accessible mm-hmm. that we all should be thinking in this way. Mm-hmm. And I think we have an opportunity to learn and lead alongside each other from these points. Yeah. And I think that the more, and you say this very clearly, clearly in your book, I think the more that we're aware, self-aware, aware of the intersection of our different identities and and the different sort of hats we wear, let's put it that way, yeah. the more we can actually step back from those hats and think about different perspectives and different ways of thinking or different solutions, even if that's an outlier view in inverted commas, even if it's not, you know, the most widely held view. Right. Which which brings me to the idea of misleadership. So I really like the word. And I just think, yeah, I hadn't found a word that sort of summed it up like that. But it would be great if you could like just explain what misleadership is for you. And then to come back to this discussion, what more voices could bring to that? Mm, yes. It's it's funny because I also couldn't find a word to, <laughs> to describe this. And we yeah. always talk about, you know, something that's misleading. Uh, that yes. It's presented in a way that may not be fully correct or may, you know, uh, move us towards a direction mm. that we weren't intending. Mm. I always kind of think about like the, the very, very fine print of <laughs> something when you're yeah. when you're purchasing something. And, you know, we have this good concept of this idea of something being misleading, but we haven't explored this concept of misleadership. uh, (laughs) I really like that. (laughs) You know, like, and I think that it exists that we are presented a a lot of times with, you know, this intentional or not uh, Mm -hmm. idea of what leadership is, um, what leadership should be, that it's really, you know, knowing all the answers, you know, finding all the solutions, like really thinking about the traditional ways that we've Mm. talked about leadership, Mm. that there is uh, one leader or, you know, a few at the very top um, and then many, many followers, others that, you know, are not, Mm. not leadership. For me, I think there's a lot of misleadership embedded in that design Mm. um, that it actually isn't representative of leadership there there may of course be leadership that's exhibited um in those roles in those positions um but i think there's also a lot of misleadership that we are accustomed to looking up to yeah. a leader mm-hmm. um and you know we have a host of examples of when that person at that top uh, of an organization of a country um, and mm. not exhibiting no leadership really. yeah. at all, at mm. all. And yet we, we're kind of looking at it as leadership. Mm. And so that is a, my example of thinking about what misleadership is, that we're assigning this a, a label of leading, of leader, of leadership to people, to C-suites or to, mm. you know, uh, those with positional authority mm. that, isn't actually leadership. They just have positional authority. Um, mm. and, and so that's really what we want to, you know, divest from, like really question it a little bit more and then look at where else leadership exists. Mm. Um, that, mm. It doesn't just have to be at the top. It's at, across the entire organization. Absolutely. And I mean, if I take like Peter Senge's view on it, like leadership is the capacity of a human community to shape its future. 
yeah. which is also what I read in your work in terms of creating a collective container. But, but I think the misleadership really struck a chord with me around that's also what keeps systemic bias in place. Yeah. So we can go and recruit and source diverse talent. Let's take the, you know, you've always got hiring process and promotion processes. But if I, yeah. if I recruit diverse talent, if I'm recruiting for culture fit, mm-hmm. then I'm basically cutting off the richness of that diversity by telling that person or those people that they have to fit in as opposed to belong. That's right. And I don't know how we can combat that. I, you know, it's, it's tricky. All of this is is Mm. tricky because it's so embedded. It's so deeply ingrained. And a lot of times we're not even aware again, going back to that awareness. Um, And, you know, when we think about that question about culture fit, fit into what? Um, and, <laughs> and then really investigating that history of how that culture has been built, particularly for organizations that have been around for mm. a long time, then you are you are trimming out the potential because you, you are then narrowing what it means to be a culture fit, you know, particularly in, in hiring practices, though, that's, that's such a trigger point for mm. organizations you know, that that is just a, a very you know space where we can look at and examine how we are systematically leaving uh, mm. a lot of talent a lot of potential a lot of leadership out um because yeah. we're aligning trying to align towards culture fit mm. and what would it look like if culture fit is just created by who's there. Like, you know, that it really, mm. it's evolving. It changes with who mm. is working at an organization at a given time. It's not something that is kind of carried along through mm. predecessor and predecessor and predecessor that has all kind of been aligned, that all been like the same perspective yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Um, I just imagine, you know, organizations that are much more nimble, much more, you know, responsive to mm. the uncertainty, the challenge is much more innovative because they're malleable. They can shift with the people that are fueling the work. Um, yeah. It's almost like culture fitness, isn't it? <laughs> because it is about going to the gym and creating new that. muscles and creating new habits. Yeah. Um, yep. But also the definition of talent. I mean, mm. you know, that's also based on existing rhetoric and mm-hmm. existing reference points, which I completely get. And, the, you know, yeah. I was going to say there's nothing wrong with that apart from the fact that it's cutting off a lens for potential talent that maybe doesn't fit the criteria, but, you know, do we need to change the criteria as opposed to that person is not on the talent list? And it really reminds me of, you know, you use the analogy of natural systems and trees and and the roots and, you know, how, you know, nature's always been one of my inspirations, but as also, you know, I'm always in awe of how natural systems adapt Mm. and just evolve so that they can survive and then afterwards so that they can thrive. Yep. And I really like that in this discussion because I think it is about fitness and it is about the inherent strength that you get from understanding a system yep. and how it works today might not be how it works tomorrow. So internal systems, so that's your I am powerful, which right. which is you know powering inherent strength in your system. And then you've got the external system, which is around you know, understanding the cycles and, and moving from scarcity to a model more of, of abundance. So, mm-hmm. you know, the compare and compete model, which, you know, I like to I like to imagine what care and collaborate might look like. And that really kept coming back to me when I was reading your book. I was like, 
Yeah, because your tap in questions, which I really liked, which, you know, force the reader to stand back and and take a look at curious questions. You know, are we asking the right questions? Are we questioning not only the system, because that's easier than questioning ourselves. So, you know, what does that look like? What does that feel like? So it would be interesting. How? What do you think it would look like and how could we move to care and collaborate? Because clearly we need some type of frame and we need we still need policies and processes. And That's right. So how could we move towards that, Jenny, do you think? Yeah, I mean... So a million dollar question. <laughs> one, two, three, here it is. Well, that, that's even part of the thing that I, you know, I highlight in the book, that there mm-hmm. is no like step-by-step step for yeah. any of this. And yeah. there shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. So any of the... The, you know, I've read so many of these books um, over my career that mm. were like the top 10 things to do for X, Y, Z. I just, it doesn't feel real to me. Mm. I, I think the the messiness and the uh, em- embracing of the messiness mm. and the, you know, that care and, and understanding that it is messy is like step one, um, yeah. that, that we have to build mm. comfort in naming that getting to a model of care and collaboration is not going to be linear. It's not going to be, you know, uh, yeah, it's not going to be easy. And, and I think that's, what's difficult is that that runs counter to, I think a lot of pressures and a lot Mm. of like, you know, quote unquote realities that organizations face on like achieving outcomes, right? Metrics, um, you know, really the, the numbers, the bottom line. Like yeah. if you think about all the ways that we are now looking to another ball uh, yeah. to get things done, to do yeah. the to-do list, it, it really is about the straight line. It is about the input to output. Um, mm. And I think our opportunity right now is to imagine how care and collaboration and awareness and mm. context societal context our own individual histories the you yeah. know all these aspects play a part into getting to those outcomes in a much more meaningful way and in a probably a, i would hypothesize a much more impactful way um mm. and so in the book i talk about this idea of contextual yeah. agility. Uh, and I really I, like that. Good. Yes. I, when I really was reflecting on mm. my own leadership journey, the, you know, those that I interviewed for the book and and really learning from those that, um, you know, have been women of color, a lot of women mm. of color that I've seen lead organizations. I've witnessed this kind of contextual agility at play that I think is where we should look to as a leadership model as a framework Mm. to think about. And what that means is at any given moment, at any given decision point, at any given project, any collaboration, we should be uh, aware of ourselves, what we bring to the table, our power, our Mm. leadership strengths, our growth areas as well. Mm. We all have them. Um, Just that that awareness of who we are, what we're bringing. And then in connection to the system, uh, really understanding the system at play, whether that be the team, organization, mm. um, you know, the, uh, an industry, uh, and really pacing that connection between ourselves and the role we are in within a system, and then connecting that to the past and the future. So this, like, it, you know, active and engaged interplay between self, system, um, past, and future that this present moment is representing. That yeah. even though we don't talk about 
a lot of these mm. historical contexts are we don't bring in, you know, our lived experiences, mm. those intersections and those marginalized perspectives. We don't we kind of leave a lot out as yep. we're doing business, quote unquote, uh, then we we miss out. We we haven't actually led. I don't mm. I don't think we, you know, led with our full capacity. And so when we think about care and collaboration, I, I do think about, you know, exercising this contextual agility that understands, you know, we're all interconnected. These systems are, you know, interconnected and, and we play a role of them. And and then how does our awareness of our past individual and system inform our steps that we want to take to the future? Like what what mm. is the vision that we're working towards? Mm. And so, you know, through the mess, I think we we want to move our arms around it, grab our hands around it, like make it give it a usable, hook. <laughs> tangible. Yeah, give it a like something <laughs> yeah. where it goes back to that very first conversation. It's like, you know, systems are powerful, but I'm I'm not powerless. Like I can mm. do something in the, mm. my moment. I can think about the full context and make a decision on on behalf of others or mm. really in, including others mm. ideally in in those decisions mm. um, and and really trying to embed that into processes mm. in within organizations yeah and for me there are two invitations in your model around contextual agility in the past future systems but also for me the first invitation is to be present yeah so be in the present moment and that leadership is about who i'm being not mm-hmm. what I'm doing, which is what a lot of the metrics are on and a lot of how to be more effectively to do this, do that, do that. That's right. Um, so my f- the first invitation that I read there was to be present to act because that's where your power comes from. Or should I say this is my interpretation? So the first yep. one was to, was an invitation to be present. The second one was an invitation to become as aware as possible of my intersections, of my identities, of my lived experiences but also of the fact that somebody else's context could be different um, and is different because nobody on this earth has exactly the same perspective on, on things, right. which is why it's it's so interesting to, to sort of gather different perspectives, but also to create the conditions uh, for mm. this dialogue to happen, which, as you state very clearly in your book, and I wholly agree with, takes a lot of time. And time mm-hmm. is something most leaders don't have. Yeah. Although there's personal agency in that, isn't there? So I come back to our invitation to be present, <laughs> which is that's right. I'm going to decide to, you know, understand this context before I try and be agile in it or do anything else with it. I'm going to be present and try and understand what's going on there so that I can create the conditions for people to be led differently, but also to lead differently. Because I think you don't, if you only ever have your own feedback, then you're not going to grow very much, are you? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes. And I think, you know, I I facilitate a lot of sessions around Mm. uh, this work for organizations. Mm. And I always frame when we get into this idea of contextual agility, it requires a balance between thought and action. It is not always action. And that, you know, we do, we are predisposed to prefer action, um, Mm. to prefer to reward action and to be effective. I, I think you you have to have that pause. You have to have step back mm. moment to understand what's going on. What is the context? What this is my context. Yeah. How can I be sure I have others' context? Like what you know? Can I make it? Am I 
able to make a decision right now because I don't, mm. I might not have the full context. Mm. Uh, and so really that does require time. Um, mm. And so that's where, you know, a lot of the tap in questions in the book and, and really a lot of the work is about pausing, stepping mm. back and, and, and thinking about, you know, that building that awareness to then mm. when the time comes, when the fast decision has to happen, you've done the work, you've made this, this a priority to be in, in that thought time mm. in that space. Mm. I always think, it, you know, when I think about the word agility, a lot of times I think about like physical agility, like, yeah. you know, athletes that mm. you know, tennis players, soccer players, like folks that um, just have to move really quickly yeah. at a drop of a dime um, to get to their goal, mm. to their outcome. And so really thinking about that as agility and none of those athletes you know, just show up and are just agile no. At, no. <laughs> by no. like some by nature, but they no. still they train a yeah. lot. They do yeah. a lot of work. They they there's a lot behind the scenes. There's a lot that may seem disconnected to their uh, sport, uh, mm. but they they cross train. They think about other ways of preparing their bodies mm. to be agile. Mm. I'm saying the same thing for leadership, for contextual agility, for effective leadership, we have to do that training. Um, we have yeah. to do that that time in the gym and that fitness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We have to spend that time so that when the moment calls, we're prepared. We're ready to mm. you know, make decisions that are not harmful to others, that mm. are not e- exclusive to others, mm. that are you know really effective because they've and been informed by the full context because they've had that space to be fully aware of um, mm. self system past and future and all those components that that inform the present moment mm. and then we can make that get move. going <laughs> yeah and then we can get going get going yeah. <laughs> but I think I think what's interesting in that analogy and what's coming up just as we talk is they also train their emotions and their minds don't they so they don't that's just right. train their body and that's something you talk about uh, quite extensively in the book. And particularly around, you know, how we perceive power and internalized narratives from experience to date and whether we have a seat at that decision making table or not. And often underrepresented leaders and minorities don't, unfortunately. And, you know, there's a whole part in your book that, you know, it's a whole other podcast, but, you know, the sort of stealth mode and and the contortion, the workplace contortionists and lots of other um, analogies and metaphors that I would invite our listeners to go and read. But I really like the bit on imposter syndrome and what it is and what it isn't and whether it's a syndrome or not. And that was music to my ears because, you know, it's just a natural human reaction to newness and asking myself, am I going to be able to do this or not? But it's, it's been built into something bigger and it's, it's always branded as a female issue. Um, I would love you to walk our listeners through imposter syndrome what it is, but also the collective dimension, because it's the first time I'd really thought about that. And that was something that really stayed with me, Jenny, from my reading of that chapter. I was like, yeah. Oh, so that becomes a systemic memory. And, and that's that's what happens. So I think that's interesting to just unpack a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is one that also for me was a turning point because I identified very closely with imposter syndrome. I, you know, throughout my academic career, up until my doctoral studies, Mm. I didn't speak in class. I was, I didn't, I was so afraid of 
my contributions. I was so uncertain of what I could bring mm. to there. I, did, I didn't belong. Um, mm. And it really inhibited me for decades again mm. uh, on how I actually did feel like an imposter in, in these spaces. And, and so imposter syndrome, of course, you know, it, it began uh, the, from uh, research in the 70s. So it's, mm. it's not new, uh, even no. though I think it much more recently has become much of an industry, I yes, would say. A massive uh, industry. <laughs> massive <laughs> industry. Um, and the original research was around, it, it did, it was based on women, uh, mm. high-performing women that kind of questioned their abilities, that that question, even though they had all these accolades and, and successes, um, would still kind of question their their abilities. And, and so really fast forwarding to today and this proliferation of imposter syndrome and responding to it. And this is what you do and you can overcome and confidence building and all <laughs> the list is endless of mm. all the courses and the things that you can, the coaches you can uh, connect with. Mm. Um, it's really still very focused on an individual deficit that yes. you yes. are at a deficit because you don't have the confidence because you're unsure because you know, all these aspects and it has now, you know, become this machine that that we uh, that a lot of money. I think it's a financial equity issue as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of money yeah, is being spent yes, by absolutely. women, by people of color, trying yes. to build uh, to fix and, themselves and to fix it. Yeah. When if we again, you know, interrogate mm-hmm. critically, mm-hmm. of course, I've have felt like an imposter in my academic career because I was one of the few and only uh, women of color in those Mm. spaces. Mm. I didn't see a lot of professors or folks that, you know, looked like me in Mm. those spaces. Mm. And then we kind of take that more broadly. If we are thinking about leadership and kind of moving into leadership and, and navigating these spaces, we know that it is predominantly, still predominantly white and male male. at those top you know, positions. And that then creates the space that we are kind of moving through. And so Mm. there's all these junctures that will affect our own, you know, concept of ourselves because the system is Mm. saying, eh, implicitly or explicitly, you don't really belong, or this is the way to do it. Uh, This is the way to lead when it doesn't really feel Mm. right for you. Yeah. That it, you have, an, again, another perspective that isn't maybe what you are experiencing. And to combat that, to kind of bring that to fruition, that's really hard. I mean, think it's, yeah. it's, it's really, you know, a, a systemic deficit that imposter syndrome is exposing less than an, uh, a, a personal deficit. Mm. But it's, it's lived, isn't it, as an internal, internalized individual narrative of, I'm not good enough, or that's I need right. something else to get there. And that's the system's messages. Let me help you. Let, right. let me help you with your competence to get to the top. And often it's not about my competence. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. Exactly right. And I think, you know, I think what you were just touching on a little bit is that we all have, you know, moments of uncertainty of like, ah, yeah. you know, I'm trying something for the first time. I'm stretching out of my comfort zone. Yeah. I don't feel confident about it. You know, like there's just moments that, Mm. that, you know, are natural for all of us. I think it was data that said 
70% of uh, people at one moment will experience imposter syndrome, that they yes. feel like an imposter. Yeah. And I think that is so telling because, you know, more often than not, while you're experiencing those moments of self-doubt, the person you're talking to is also feeling those moments <laughs> of self-doubt, statistically speaking. Yeah. And so I think that also then points to something else uh, mm. about our systems, about the ways we do organizations, about the ways we expect our leaders to, you know, solve everything, know everything. Mm. Um, and, and all of us, we, we don't have, we don't give ourselves enough runway to learn, to no. make mistakes, yeah. to uh, no. try something new. Mm. Like the, the consequences feel too big. Um, mm. And I think that, and sometimes they are too big that, mm. that we've now created these cultures of, I can't show my cards. I can't show that I actually am mm. not sure about what I'm doing right now, or mm. I, mean, I have these doubts. Um, and, and that's too bad. Again, that's a, I think that's a untapped mm. capacity because Massively. we're all, yes. you know, in these, we're all experiencing this and yeah. how can we create cultures and systems that cushion that, mm. that are, are, that allow, that have space, that facilitate that human experience mm. as we're trying to work towards our outcomes, as we're trying to do something new mm. that maybe hasn't been done before, or bring in a perspective that maybe hasn't been brought in before, and do so with the support of the system rather than the potential consequences that a system could yeah. delve into because of a mistake so yeah and actually looking at it as an opportunity to do something differently and not as as a way to oh we need to fix it you've broken the system oh that's not you know or maybe we've just created a crack so that the light gets in you know yeah. to, to quote Leonard Cohen maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe that's that's a good thing you know maybe that light right. is there to shine a light on something different that's right that's right yeah. and again it, it just goes back to you know I think the organizations, the teams, the the people that are most effective kind of embrace this mm. quote unquote mess, but I think it's just reality. Like yeah. we we are we embrace the complexities of mm. reality and and use it and mm. leverage it. And and that's how we move towards the change that we want, the, the equitable future that we want to see, the outcomes that we want to see. Mm. That's the only way. Mm. To, to the zone of untapped capacity. So I can't finish the podcast without asking you this question. So just, yes. I love this about the zone of untapped capacity, which is also what would be a zone of genius. Could you just walk us through that? Yes, yes. So I, you know, I, I think this was also part of this process of learning from those who I've learned from in leadership mm. um, and from those that contributed to the book, that I, I saw this, this model, this zone of untapped capacity happening um, within racially marginalized leaders, the folks that you know, were participating in, in these conversations. So the zone of untapped capacity really is a, an ex or an add-on, an expansion of this idea of this zone of genius. And mm -hmm. so listeners may be aware of this idea of zone of genius where you want to find work that just flows through. You're kind of in this <laughs> flow state. This zone of genius is where mm -hmm. we thrive. Uh, and a lot of us will stay in kind of the, a zone of competence that we're good at something, mm -hmm. but we don't necessarily like 
love it. We're just good at it. Um, And so zone of genius kind of moves beyond uh, that zone of competence into this space of just flowing. Um, Mm. For me, you know, I think when we, I think about leadership, when I think about what leadership, how leadership should be defined, I think it exists within this zone of untapped capacity. And Mm -hmm. how I present it in the book is that there's this overlay, this, uh, you know, this concentric circles Mm. of the ways in which we have power and privilege, no matter, you know, all of Mm. us. And Mm. in some way we have power and privilege that's dynamic, but we should be aware of that. And then also the ways we have marginalized perspectives, going back to those intersecting, Mm. you know, identities, those lived experiences, those, those things that are kind of pushed a little bit out to the margins Mm. in professional spaces, in workplaces. And when we're in the zone of untapped capacity, we are leveraging our own power and privilege to bring in those marginalized perspectives, to bring about change or impact that is informed by those unique standpoints, um, because that is the leadership moment. Mm. That is really what shifts culture, what shifts, you know, these big systems, these Mm. embedded systems that doesn't work for all aspects of ourselves. It doesn't work for anyone that has, you know, marginalized identity. Mm. Um, and, Mm. And so how can we be sure that we use our agency, our power, our currency, mm. our power and privilege. Um, how can we use that to be sure we're leading with this lens that we've left out or the system leaves out? And I think that is where our potential lies, our uh, untapped capacity lies for all organizations. And I think, you know, mm. on the individual level, we all should be doing that work because that mm. is that moment. Um and so just to share a little story about this was, you know, uh, critical for me in this work and untapped mm. leadership and untapped leaders and founding this organization. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've had a few decades of uh, designing and developing uh, cohort leadership programs, mm. um, really, you know, doing a lot of this work. I realized in, in 2020, I mean, it was mm. probably a core shaking year for a lot of us, but, yeah. uh, you know, on the heels of George Floyd's murder here in, in the yeah. United States. It was a wake-up call for me uh, that I hadn't, I had been complicit and complacent in mm. the realities of our world at the time. Um, and I, how could I leverage my power and privilege, which I would, you know, I would I assign my power as, you know, the, my education, my credentials, yep. um, you know, the, those mm-hmm. aspects, um, <clears throat> having a, you know, a VP role, a title, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that could carry with me um, in this resume. But then also think about the ways that I've had marginalized perspectives in the leadership development space um, mm-hmm. that I I didn't, I've always been facilitating and training, um, you know, and reading frameworks that were developed by those that didn't look like me yep. and probably didn't have someone like me in mind. Yep. Yep. So this was my moment uh, mm. in, in leading in my untapped capacity, mm. bringing in this, bringing in the perspective of others uh, to this conversation around it. So bringing this interplay between power and privilege in my marginalized perspective, create this book to create mm. this organization. Um, and so that, that really is leading in, in that untapped capacity. Hey, super. 
And what would your final call to action be for our listeners, thinking that, you know, maybe I should take a different view on what I do as a leader and how I show up as a leader? Yeah. I think no matter, you know, when I wrote this book, this was not a leadership book for people of color. This was mm. not a leadership book for a specific, you know, group. Um, this is leadership for everyone. Um, this is uh, now adding perspectives and adding and widening the lens of, of what we interpret as leadership mm. to include voices and, and people that we haven't studied, that we haven't yeah. looked to, that we have, we don't see, you know, that we have, that have been marginalized from those top positions that we mm. usually look to for leadership. And mm. so I think anyone at any level in listening to this podcast of this conversation, I, I think interrogating your definitions of leadership and mm. what the sources have been um, and, and really are you sure that your model, that the way you're exercising leadership actually is aware of mm. the, the totality of, of the context of the people that you're leading, of mm. the organization that you're working within? Then um, how can you find ways to understand the full context before making decisions so that when there's an opportunity to disrupt the status <clears throat> quo, to pause on things that just are not working for everyone, um, mm. then then you know to take that mm. moment. You know what to do in those moments. So that's what I would recommend. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for that. And I'm also going to leave our listeners with a linked question in your book, the tap-in question of everything you've read, all the other quotes, what do you get from your own observations and your own experience? I really like that question. And I also like that invitation to actually notice what I notice about what I'm observing, what I'm experiencing and what I think. So I'm going to leave our listeners with those two, those two calls for action. Jenny, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories, your experience and your book. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Yes. So I am, my organization is Untapped Leaders at www.untappedleaders.com, as well as socials, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Untapped Leaders. And then me, I always make folks write my entire last name. So it's uh, <laughs> at Jenny Vasquez Newsom. Vasquez is with two Zs. Um, so you can find me on, on LinkedIn and on uh, Instagram as well. Excellent. I'll put those in the show notes so that people can find you easily. Okay. <laughs> Thanks once again, Jenny. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you, Susie. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>